Welcome back for part four of my retrospective on the movies of 2009. The summer was packed with all kinds of movies, including a packed month of June, so as usual I'll be skipping documentaries, which tend to have a longer shelf life and less novelty. A lot of big pictures were coming out for July 4th weekend that year, since it fell on a Saturday, so let's go. Ice Age 3, Dawn of the Dinosaurs, reunited our cast of cartoon prehistoric creatures in another adventure. At this point, Blue Sky and 20th Century Fox were just cranking these things out every few years. The name did not even make sense, as the film has already shown humans, and humans only developed in the past thousands of years, but dinosaurs were dead for millions of years. Given that this is a series that had the squirrel rat, Scrat, dividing Pangaea into continents, I know they play loose with the facts, but it would not be the dawn of the dinosaurs. Anyway, this story is all about raising babies. Sid the Sloth raises some baby tyrannosaurs. Manny and Ellie the Mastodons are about to have a calf. It's all babies! At a budget of $90 million, it made $886 million, or just shy of a billion. This is in spite of most critics giving a middling score. Ebert called it the best of the three films. This was also one of the movies to capitalize on the 3D gimmick that saw a revival at this time, with a lot of the bigger budgets. It is usually a digitally added 3D effect, rather than using any special filming technique, of course. Since the franchise was still profitable, we would see two more sequels, Continental Drift and Collision Course. I never got into the series personally. Next is Public Enemies, directed and co-written by Michael Mann, and based on a book of the same name by Brian Burrow. It's a dramatization of the time that Melvin Purvis of the FBI pursued John Dillinger. The book was originally planned as a TV miniseries, and as such, was apparently not hard to adapt. It's Johnny Depp vs. Christian Bale, Captain Jack Sparrow vs. Batman. The movie starts out with a jailbreak, leading to Purvis being tasked with capturing Dillinger after having put away Charles' pretty boy Floyd. Meanwhile, Dillinger starts a string of bank robberies, winning over a waitress named Billy, who hangs on like a groupie. After a failed ambush at Purvis's request, the FBI sends him an intelligence officer with a military background. From there, things only escalate as the chase and the pace intensify in this drama based on real-life events. I have not seen this movie, but it was on my list to watch for years. It made back double its budget easily. Originally, Leonardo DiCaprio was to play Dillinger, but nothing came of it, and after years he went on to play in Martin Scorsese's Shutter Island. Oddly, this would have seen him playing opposite Marion Cotillard before they appeared opposite one another in Inception a year later. The film takes artistic license with the facts, as is often the case, but also the book contains details on many of the worst criminals from that point in history, as the Depression gave rise to many criminals. For more, you can read the book or watch the movie. Now, we come to a mockumentary from Sasha Baron Cohen in the same spirit as Borat. Bruno features Cohen as the titular character, a gay Austrian fashion journalist, another character from his days making Da Ali G show. Critics liked it, audiences liked it, 
It made a chunk of money against its budget. There's nothing really else to say since the comedy flows from Cohen acting ridiculous while other people just react. Moving on, Chris Columbus brings us I Love You, Beth Cooper, based on a book of the same name by Larry Doyle, who also wrote the screenplay. Dennis is a school valedictorian, and during his speech, he confesses his love for Beth, the head cheerleader, and badmouths a bunch of his classmates. The film basically has a lot of antics happening all in one night. Beth's boyfriend and his buddies are after Dennis. Meanwhile, she and Dennis are spending a lot of time together. It's mostly a lot of adolescent wish fulfillment, with events like Dennis's friend Rich having a threesome with Beth's two friends. This film did not make back its budget, and not surprisingly, critics hated it. Essentially, the story is like a remake of Can't Hardly Wait, but with worse acting, apparently. Also, apparently, there was more chemistry between Dennis and Rich than that of Dennis and Beth. Next is Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, which is my favorite book in the series, but J.K. Rowling is a racist transphobe, so to heck with the whole franchise. 500 Days of Summer was the sleeper hit, costing less than $8 million to film and making back over $60 million. It led to a lot of work for stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Zoe Deschanel. It's a story told out of order about the year and a half that architect Tom spends dating Summer Finn, his boss's assistant. The best lesson I can give from this is that the 500 days they spend together is indicative of a real-life pattern where two years is the average mark where the honeymoon period ends, and you stop ignoring the red flags. It can be more or less, but that's the usual time frame for a relationship to get past in order to work. Critics loved it, especially Ebert. For most of us, the story represents the archetypal manic pixie dream girl, a woman onto whom a man who admires her places a lot of fantasies. He's essentially in a manic delusion and sees her as if a pixie rather than as she is. Up next, a psychological erotic thriller called Death in Love. This story is about a woman interned at a concentration camp who has an affair with a doctor there, conducting experiments. As you do. Given, I guess it would earn you some favor. Fifty years later, she has two sons. The younger lives at home, and the elder is a lecherous talent scout who takes advantage of the women seeking representation. The film was financed by the director, Boaz Yakin. The story got middling reviews online, but in print media, the story was praised highly, as it tells a different story from many others. So, if you're interested in a strange kind of thriller, maybe check this one out. Next, we have Disney and Bruckheimer teaming up for an action-packed story about guinea pigs in G-Force. This is another in a line of family films dependent on 3D CGI, celebrity voices, and working jokes into a ho-hum script. In this case, many former Saturday Night Live cast members make up the cast. Critics hated it, but it also made double the budget at the box office. Naturally, that budget was obscenely high, so we never got a sequel. The only credit this movie got was for the original score. I think this is worth watching once if you need some lighter fare, but otherwise, no need to see it. 
Ebert gave it a 2.5 out of 4 and called it inoffensive. In the Loop was a big, gritty political comedy from the people that worked on popular British TV satire, The Thick of It. It features Peter Capaldi alongside a load of other players in the top of their game, and even features James Gandolfini. During the course of the film, they poke a lot of fun at the Anglo-American relationship at the time, especially regarding the occupation of Iraq. Frankly, it sounds like a great movie worth watching. Also, I know that I am probably mispronouncing Iraq, because people have told me that it is pronounced Iran and Iraq, but they are spelled so similarly I'm going to mix them up. I'm sorry. Now we come to the notorious horror film Orphan, about a couple that adopt a girl who turns out to be a grown woman who also happens to be a cold-blooded killer. And that's not a spoiler because everyone kind of knew the premise, but I won't ruin the rest of it. Uh, the film itself was a hit, making back almost four times the budget. It got middling reviews online, but critics in print loved it for its take on the evil child trope in horror movies. Next is The Ugly Truth, a poorly conceived opposites attract romantic comedy with Katherine Heigl and Gerard Butler. It's contrived. Butler plays Mike, the host of a show where he is crass and abusive, and they try to give him a sympathetic side by giving him a sister and nephew he cares about. Heigl plays Abby, a morning TV show producer. She is supposedly naive. Essentially, the film's writers decided that people want to see unvarnished opinions on air for some reason. The film made tons of money, of course, five times the budget, but the online reviews are despairingly low, citing that there's no charm or payoff and relies on the formula. Peter Travers of Rolling Stone called it multiplex garbage and upheld the aforementioned 500 Days of Summer as the better romantic comedy. Time magazine called it one of the 10 worst chick flicks, and Ebert said that with regards to its portrayal of morning news, it makes Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy, look like a documentary. Next, we come to one of the greatest offenders in all of my cinematic experience, Adam. This is the story of a young man with Asperger's Syndrome and Autism Spectrum Disorder, who lives in an apartment with his father until the father dies. Then he begins having a relationship with his neighbor, Beth. This is an example of an autism story that is once again told without bothering to actually talk with someone on the autism spectrum. Instead, he based it on an NPR interview and some reading. So naturally, he has Adam dressed as an astronaut, doing insane crap, and being horrible. She was flatly warned that his condition made him not dating material, and in the end, decides to dump him and write a children's book in which he is depicted as a raccoon. Because ableism is not dehumanizing enough, we have to compare autistic people to wild animals. They try to whitewash it by showing him working at a planetarium since one of his special interests is space, and then he meets an awkward girl like him, so that makes it all okay. It got middling reviews from Rotten Tomatoes, Metacritic, and Ebert. Nina Kaplan of Time Out London called it dishonest, saying it's not clear why a pretty daddy's girl would fall for a talkative and lonesome engineer with Asperger's and a space fixation. 
This is like if you took 500 Days of Summer and made The Boy the Manic Pixie Dream instead. There are several films like this that try to tell stories about autistic people without bothering to include autistic people in the creative process. And someday I will cover as many as I can muster, but for now, do not ever watch Adam. On to a lighter note. We have aliens in the attic. No, that's not my attic. I mean the title of the movie. It's a bit like Home Alone meets Space Invaders. It's a goofy sci-fi adventure for the family that seems inoffensive and has some decent cast members to it. It made a decent sum at the box office, even. Being a lowbrow comedy, it ends on a nutshot, so we are not talking about any great work here. Watch it if you want. Up next is Judd Apatow's star-studded film, Funny People. It's about a dying comedian who tries to set things right with the people in his life and in the process sort of takes on a protege. It just fell shy of making back its budget of $75 million, which was no doubt due to the many top performers in the cast. Online critics gave it above-average scores, and Ebert nearly gave it a perfect score, praising the dialogue, supporting roles, and the overall story leading somewhere. Kyle Smith in the New York Post called it absorbing. In Rolling Stone, Peter Travers praised it for encompassing the joy, pain, anger, loneliness, and aching doubt that goes into being a comedian. Michael Phillips in the Chicago Tribune seemed to think it was Apatow's midlife crisis film, trying to reconcile who he is with who he was, and called the film exasperating at two and a half hours. Gene Shalit of NBC's The Today Show called it unendurable, vulgar, and ineffable. And that is why it did not make back its budget, folks. Movies, as with comedy, are about knowing your audience. Next, we have Stephen Summers' answer to Michael Bay's Transformers saga in G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra. This movie features an all-star cast and big-budget special effects to reinvent the 80s reboot of the soldier doll as a group of specialists in several different kinds of special ops situations. At a colossal budget of $175 million, it just managed to turn a profit at over $300 million in the box office. This film was perfectly cast, and was basically a kid-friendly version of the Mission Impossible franchise without all the subterfuge. I especially loved Marlon Wayans as Ripcord and Dennis Quaid as Hawk. Internet critics scored it below average. Fans declared that it butchered the mythos in favor of derivative storyline devices. And all I can say is, to take off the nostalgia goggles, the 80s cartoon was all about derivative storyline devices and was itself designed to sell toys. The episodes were so devoid of actual lessons that they had to create shorts for before the end credits, featuring some member of the team giving some lesson to kids about safety around power cables or something like that. If you have not seen the online spoofs of these PSAs, please look them up, because they are hilarious. Anyway, while critics called The Ugly Truth a popcorn movie, I would call The Rise of Cobra far more of a popcorn movie. It's glitzy and polished, with cameos from Stephen Summers' favorites like Brendan Fraser, and is pure brain candy. No calories, just pure energy. I did not love or hate this, but just had fun. A lot like with the cartoon. 
Praise has to go to Alan Silvestri for his typically excellent work on the original music. One movie that is not pure brain candy is Julie and Julia, with Amy Adams and Meryl Streep respectively. This was produced, written, and directed by Nora Ephron, writer of Silkwood and When Harry Met Sally. It's based on Julia Child's book, My Life in France, and the Julie Powell book, Julie and Julia, from which we get the film's title, naturally. In the film, Powell is trying to cook all of Julia Child's cookbook recipes over the course of one year. No pun intended. Course? Yeah? Anyway. Uh, this was Efron's last film, and what a film to go out on before 2012 when we lost her. Critics loved it online and in print, and audiences agreed, as it raked in almost $130 million. It won Streep a Golden Globe for Best Actress, along with several other awards, although for the Broadcast Film Critics Association Awards, she did have to share with Sandra Bullock. What else is there to say? It's a beloved movie worth seeing, made by a skilled veteran auteur. Next, we have Paperheart starring Michael Sarah and Charlene Yi, at the time best known for her role on House M.D. And for this film, she actually co-wrote the film with Nicholas Jasenovic. The film is a faux documentary Yi had originally thought of making as a real documentary about what love is. The film fools you on several levels into thinking it is real and causes you to sympathize with the characters, and in the process, teaches you some lessons. Ebert gave it an above-average score, as did Rotten Tomatoes. I think it is worth watching at least once as independent films go. Band Slam is a romantic comedy-drama concocted by Josh A. Kagan and director Todd Graff. It went through title changes during filming, and at one point was titled Will and Rock On. In a nutshell, it follows a group of young adults as they form a band to compete in the eponymous Band Slam competition. It has a happy ending and is fun enough for wish fulfillment, but the film failed to make back its budget and has lingered in obscurity ever since. Critics loved it, and even those who did not could not find themselves hating it, so let's add this one to my personal watch list. Next is one of the most loved sci-fi action dramas of recent years, District 9. Based on a short film called Alive in Joburg, the film is about a group of bug aliens landing on Earth in 1982 and unable to leave. The aliens are sick and hungry, and the apartheid South African government decides to shove them in a camp, the eponymous District 9. The story borrows a bit of its premise from predecessors like Alien Nation, but quickly turns the story in a different direction from what we expect, and that Ryan Johnson, is how you subvert the audience's expectations. This film also borrows heavily from our own history, including the setting of South Africa being a very substantive choice. It's been a popular piece of hard-edged sci-fi for years, and as a result of the effects matching the concept, it made seven times its budget of $30 million. Now we come to the goods subtitled Live Hard, Sell Hard, which does not even really make sense. The original subtitle was The Don Reddy Story, which is not much better. This is a Jeremy Piven film co-produced by Will Ferrell and Chris Henchy, fresh off their failure with Land of the Lost, 
Remember that this is Piven pre-Mr. Selfridge and long after his days of PCU and Ellen. It features a decent cast, including James Brolin, Ving Rhames, David Kochner, Catherine Hahn, and Ed Helms, fresh from his success in The Hangover. It's basically a story about a bunch of people at work trying to achieve a lofty goal with a lot of personal drama thrown into the mix. There really is no friction between the characters to spur the comedy. Not surprisingly, the online critics did not score this film highly, as the characters do not really face adversity. There is no reason apparent as to why they have to sell 211 cars in three days. Ebert praised it, saying that the jokes essentially are rapid fire, but that just feels like too much to take in. The film also got some negative press when the slur Jap was used, sorry, alongside a scene of an Asian American man being beaten by a mob. Eep. Well, doesn't this movie just sound like a barrel of laughs? <laughs> Let's move on to something everyone loved, Ponyo, the story of a magic fish that turns into a girl who befriends a little boy. It's Miyazaki-san's version of a modern-day Little Mermaid, and is genuinely cute and wonderful. When I first watched it, I was delighted by its originality and gentle storytelling. At a budget of $34 million, it made six times that in the box office. It was considered an instant classic and right up there with the rest of Miyazaki-san's finest works. I have nothing else to say. If you haven't seen it, please do. August brought us The Time Traveler's Wife, a rare romance sci-fi drama based on a 2003 novel by Audrey Niffenegger. It is not an uncommon premise. A few years before the book came out, Deep Space Nine had an episode in which Captain Sisko becomes unstuck in time and only appears periodically as long as Jake is there. So he makes it his life mission to rescue his father and send him back to the point where the accident occurred to cause it. In this story, Henry has a condition that causes him to be able to move through time uncontrollably. He meets Claire and it turns out that he has been around her throughout her entire lifetime, with an older version being there when she was a child. It is a bizarre story that uses time travel as a cudgel to prevent our protagonists from being happy. I liked that when Harry meets his daughter Alba, she actually has control over when she time travels, but that seems like something that the daughter could then impart on younger Henry so as to cause him to live a less troubled life. While the film got mixed reviews from critics, the author did not want to watch it, and audiences generally liked it. It is a bit of an offbeat movie, but mid-August is a good time for that as it offers a change of pace and many of the kids go back to school and cuffing season begins. Look it up. Despite the film requiring reshoots, which always increases the budget, it did make back a significant profit, largely helped by the ad campaigns at a time when there just were not many romances out there, especially about long-term relationships. Next, we have Inglorious Bastards, written and directed by Tarantino. The 1978 film from which this borrows the title is essentially an Italian knockoff of The Dirty Dozen. This one is a fiction about a plot to assassinate the top-ranking Nazis of World War II. 
The film took 10 years to make because Tarantino decided to make the two-part Kill Bill and then the Grindhouse feature Death Proof. The film cost a whopping $70 million to make, but brought in four and a half times that at the box office. I will not spoil this one as Tarantino is an acquired taste. I never cared for the majority of his work, but I do not fault people for liking his work. The film has a stable of stars bringing their A-game, including Brad Pitt, Michael Fassbender, and Christoph Waltz. Now we come to a project directed by Todd Luiso and co-written by him and Jacob Koskoff. The Mark Peace Experience is about a young man with a lot of unresolved hang-ups from high school. Mark panicked when it was time for his solo in the school's production of The Wiz, and never forgave himself. He grows a ponytail and tries to form an acapella group, but it keeps losing members. He is even dating a high school senior named Meg, played by Anna Kendrick. That's not creepy at all. Mark has a couple of adversaries in his life. One is his former drama teacher, Mr. Gribble, and the other is himself. With a decent cast and a satisfying ending, it is a wonder that this film did not get more praise, but August is the dumping ground for a lot of movies in which the studio or distributor lack faith. Part of the problem was probably the limited release to only 10 major cities scattered around the country, resulting in the film making only $4,000 domestically. Critics at the time were divided, with some comparing it to Jason Schwartzman's earlier hit Rushmore, while Ebert faulted the writing, directing, and acting. The film has very low ratings on Rotten Tomatoes, but it sounds like an interesting enough story for giving it a chance. Our next subject is Postgrad, which filmed under titles like Ticket to Ride and The Postgrad Survival Guide. This is one of the few films I have noticed to acknowledge the recession of the late 2000s and how it killed a lot of graduates' hopes for finding a decent career. Alexis Bledel plays Ryden Malby, who graduates college just in time to move back with her family when her bestie snatches up her dream job of being a publishing editor. She eventually realizes that her other best friend, Adam, has always loved her, and he finally gives up and moves on to New York City to study at Columbia University while Ryden gets her dream job. Then, in a rather unfortunate twist, she decides that she would rather quit that job and move in with Adam. Um, Ryden? You do realize that you could have both, right? Grad school is a full-time pursuit, and he will not have time for you. You could get your career going while he is studying, and still maintain a relationship on weekends and breaks, but no. They date and spawn some kids. This one was supposed to originally star Amanda Bynes, who later dropped out, but as it is, this film features Jane Lynch, Carol Burnett, and Michael Keaton in supporting roles as Ryden's family, as well as Craig Robinson, J.K. Simmons, Fred Armisen, and Dimitri Martin. This film also represents a project written by a woman and directed by one, Kelly Freeman and Vicki Jensen, respectively. It tanked at the box office, not even making back half the budget, which I think we can blame on critics as well as the recession. They called it unambitious, uninspiring, and called Ryden dull. Ebert actually praised the film, scoring it above average and saying it was a rare film in which he wanted a sequel. Frankly, 
if more movies dealt with the impact of the recession on people's hopes and dreams, we might have a bit more understanding in the world. The only hit movie I've seen that acknowledged this was Bridesmaids, and then it acted like the recession is over. Dream on! The last week of August brought us to The Final Destination, another 3D movie with this one intended to be the fourth and last installment in the franchise about death working like a Rube Goldberg device to get you. New Line milked this property hard for years, and by releasing it during the August lull, they were able to rake in $186 million against a $40 million budget. Most critics gave it a low rating, although those who praised it appreciated the mayhem. They still admitted that the plot was very underdeveloped, and most critics talked about how the gimmick of 3D always seems to be covering up for a lack of fresh ideas. One critic even compared it to an older movie that would have gone directly to home video or basic cable stations like the Sci-Fi Channel. And you know it is bad when you are compared to something like Highlander the Source. Of course, this was not the last in the franchise, but notably it did manage to beat out our next subject. Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 is the sequel to the remake of the John Carpenter classic. It features a return of many of the first film's cast. The film made just under $40 million against a $15 million budget. In writing the film, Rob Zombie focused on the relationship between Laurie and Michael to imply that Laurie suffers from mental illness that will make her like him. And indeed, that is where the story takes us by the end. Zombie decided to film in Georgia initially just for the tax incentive and found that it had decent filming locations to suit the film's tone. Additionally, the film has a director's cut with a differing story from the theatrical version, which is barely even available. This film got such low esteem from critics that despite a planned sequel which would have completely retconned what happened in this movie, the studio decided to wait nine years before rebooting and retconning the entire thing back to the original 1978 Halloween, with the 2018 film simply called Halloween produced by Bloomhouse. That means that along with all the confusing mess from the original franchise, we now have an alternate timeline for Rob Zombie's version, and a new timeline on top of the originals, and the Bloomhouse sequel could not even bother with a subtitle to help distinguish it from the original that it was trying to connect to. You know who we need after all that confusion? The mystery team. In this comedy, a group of kids grow up solving mysteries, dubbing themselves each with skills of disguise, intelligence, and strength. Now, about to graduate high school, they have to solve a murder for a recently orphaned girl named Brianna, along with her older sister, Kelly. A series of twists and turns leads them to solving the crime, and as everything gets tied up with a nice bow, the trio find a man crying for help, leading them to their next case. This film did not make money. It was a very small release by Roadside Attractions after it premiered at Sundance. It was promoted with a digital short online called The Case of the Haunted Hotel. Critics gave it a middling score, with some noting it was amateur in its construction, while others called it nerdy, nutty, and perfectly pitched, with most agreeing that it showed promise for those involved. I would say this sounds like a fun one to pull up if you're doing a double feature or want something a bit light and engaging. Now we come to a rather interesting piece called The Open Road. 
It features Justin Timberlake, Jeff Bridges, Kate Mara, Harry Dean Stanton, Lyle Lovett, Ted Danson, and Mary Steenburgen. In this one, father and son, Kyle and Carlton Garrett, meet in Columbus, Ohio after years apart. When Carlton's mother refuses to sign a consent form for a life-saving surgery unless she can see Kyle again. Kyle fakes losing his wallet to avoid having to make the trip, but Carlton and his girlfriend Lucy decide to get him back to Texas by car. Some twists and turns lead to the liar-revealed part of the plot, but not right away. There is an excellent resolution to this where Kyle does not grow as a person. He is still a scumbag in the end, and has to be forced to come back. They make tentative plans to reconcile, but frankly, I would just as soon Kyle go jump in a lake. The rest of the resolution on this one is really satisfying, and I can say this one seems like a winner if you like comedy dramas. I also left out a lot of details for you to enjoy. Speaking of comedy dramas, Ang Lee brought us one in the historical musical Taking Woodstock. In this film, based on a memoir by Elliot Tiber and Tom Monty, it features a fantastic cast and music by Danny Elfman, but tanked at the box office, making back one-third of its $30 million budget. Weirdly enough, this is the second film I know of to feature Liev Schreiber as a gender non-conforming person, including his role as a trans woman in the Christmas comedy Mixed Nuts with Steve Martin and Adam Sandler. It essentially tells a small story about a few people that takes place in the middle of what turns out to be a cultural milestone. The account of events is disputed by many who were involved with the original Woodstock Festival. As it is, online critics gave it middling reviews, but some print critics praised it rather highly. Ebert praised its comedy. Michael Phillips of the Tribune praised the ensemble of characters. Stephen Holden of the New York Times called it likable and humane, with all three noting the significance of other facets like the cast or the connection with the rising queer pride movement. Other print critics were not so kind, with Luminek of the New York Post calling it lame, cliché, and a bore. Melissa Anderson of the Village Voice called it a lazy, wide-eyed oversimplification with inane, offensive portrayals of many groups. And Slate.com said that director Ang Lee refused to focus on the musical aspect, deeming it frustrating. Given all that, I'm not sure how to feel, and we'll just leave it with you to decide whether or not you wish to give Taking Woodstock a try. Well, that's all for Summer of 2009. Check back here for Part 5, where we'll pick up with September of 2009.